Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll talk to celebrated author Colin Dickey about his new book that offers a deep dive into the mysterious world of secret societies and conspiracies. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review two plays on opposite ends of the theater spectrum. Later in the show, I'll tell you all about the West Suburban Theater that just opened the state's biggest movie screen. It's as big as a basketball court. And I'll check in with the artistic director of Chicago Children's Theater to learn more about the company's pioneering, sensory-friendly programming. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture. Author Colin Dickey has always been interested in exploring the mysterious and unexplained. His first book, Ghostland, examined haunted places and the stories that emerged from them. His second book, The Unidentified, offered a deep dive into fringe stories, myths, and legends, tracing their origins to show how some of these accounts started and then spread. Dickey's third book, which just came out, takes a closer look at another subject matter shrouded in mystery, secret societies, and the conspiracy theories surrounding them. The book is called Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. Dickey sheds light on the Freemasons, Illuminati, and countless other groups that have attracted members and in some cases inspired fear. I recently caught up with Dickey to talk about the new book. So what was the the starting point for the idea that ended up turning into Under the Eye of Power? My last two books, uh, in 2016, I wrote a book on, on ghosts and haunted houses called Ghostland. And then my, my book after that in 2020 was about Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and other cryptids, you know, hidden creatures, as well as aliens and UFOs. And I think the pattern I started to see was that, you know, I I was really fascinated by these things that are, you know, nominally invisible or hidden or just out of sight, things that that people believe impact our world but can't quite be grasped directly. And that that led me to this idea of of the secret society, something like the Illuminati or some of, you know, these groups that are sort of hidden from sight but yet supposedly have this huge impact on our day-to-day lives and are are controlling our every move. And that led me down this path of trying to understand where these these stories come from. Do any of them, you know, have any any basis in fact and, and, and why are we so sort of fascinated by, you know, secret societies and, you know, conspiracy theories about them. Right, yeah, I was looking back at your uh, previous books, Ghostland and The Unidentified, and then, you know, I read, read Under the Eye of Power. Is there a thread that connects the, the people that are maybe audiences for some of these stories? Well, you know, it, w- it was interesting, again, because I, I feel like they're all kind of of a piece of, again, this idea of, you know, like, hidden influences on our lives. But people who, who believe in ghosts or go to houses to go ghost hunting are are, are pretty benign and kind of cross the political spectrum and are, you know, pretty chill people. And I think that that goes for uh, cryptid hunters, too, people who spend their weekends out in the woods hoping to catch sight of Bigfoot and what have you. But, you know, as I got into UFOs and aliens, I you know, 
suddenly realized how much of, of that belief involved a kind of paranoia. Like if you if you believe in the Loch Ness Monster, you don't believe the government is hiding the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. But if you believe in aliens, you, you almost certainly believe that the government knows more than they're telling us. And that, that sort of led me to this, you know, kind of gradually more and more of a kind of conspiratorial and, and paranoid outlook on the world. So this book sort of moves kind of more fully into that world of people who are convinced that, you know, something is being hidden from us and that, you know, we are, the, the world is not as it seems and there's some sort of malevolent actors behind it. I think if uh, I brought up secret societies with people on my street or if I went out on Michigan Avenue, many would probably bring up the, the Illuminati and the Freemasons. And, and early in your book, you write about the evolution of the Freemasons. So it basically, it started out as a a guild for for stone workers in the 16th century. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as the name implied, they were they were masons. They were stone masons. They worked, you know, the stone, you know, just you know, building cathedrals and whatnot. But gradually, they became a home for intellectuals to to meet and discuss things that maybe you know were would run afoul of the church and and you know, sort of it was a place for a fair amount of privacy. And over time, you know, it kind of migrated to North America, and you know, people like Ben Franklin and George Washington joined the Masons. And it was really around the founding of the United States. It was a an organization that was quite public, and it really sort of people who were Masons tended to be very proud of their, their allegiance and because they saw it as sort of bestowing upon them a certain kind of class marker, a certain kind of refinement or aristocratic uh, tinge. You know, the, the, the Masons sort of saw themselves as the, the, the upholders of, you know, American culture and democracy and kind of, you know, first among equals in a, in a new citizenry. And it's not really until the 1820s that um, the, the American public starts to kind of turn on the Masons and sort of decide that maybe we don't want this kind of other organization that of, of this kind of secret fraternity where the people seem only beholden to each other in ways that we can't really hold them accountable. And that's, you know, sort of ushers in the kind of conspiracy theories about the, the Freemasons and whatnot. And you reference this, but any thought as to where that transition from professional guild into fraternal organization happens? Yeah, it, it is pretty muddy. It happens sometime in, in Scotland and uh, I think the the 16th and 17th century, and it's it's hard to pin down because because again, the, you know, one of the hallmarks of of the Masons was that their meetings were pretty secret, which was great if you wanted to you know discuss dangerous ideas like you know atheism or democracy. But it's it's harder for a historian who's trying to sort of pinpoint that moment in which they cease to be you know just a, a you know a, a laborers guild and start to be this kind of secret intellectual organization. Side note, there's somebody here at the radio station that's a, a member, and I remember when I first started here at the station, I asked, you know, what do, what do you guys do? And he's like, you'd, you'd have to join to find out. And he just, like, walked away. Mm. Peaked, peaked my yeah. interest. Yeah, I mean, did you take steps to join? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, my grandfather joined the Masons, uh, as my mother explained, because uh, he noticed that the, the his, his boss would give uh, his coworkers more attention if they were masons he sort of recognized that there was a kind of you know commonality among among the masons so he decided to join the masons so he would get that extra treatment too and you know it worked so you know that was 40s 50s you know and so i don't think it's really true today i think it's i think the organization has lost a lot of its cultural capital but i think for a time that was that was what you did i guess different times if you're just tuning in I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the art section. I'm talking with author Colin Dickey about his new book, Under the Eye of Power. 
So it's interesting you highlight this too. The Salem witch trials and the McCarthy Field Red Scare are taught in history classes as these dangerous examples of what can happen when uh, we as a society maybe go too far. But but something like the New York conspiracy of 1741 isn't really talked about. 150 people were arrested, 34 executed based on circumstances that spiraled. Why isn't this mentioned in that same breath of some of those other cautionary tales? One of the things I really hope to do with the book is is sort of get at that thing. You know, as you mentioned, I think a lot of us grow up learning about Salem, learning about the Red Scare and McCarthy, and and frankly being taught that these are these are outliers, right? That these were these were terrible injustices, um, but they really only happened twice in our history. For the most part, democracy works pretty well, and these were just kind of you know, irrational, exuberant kind of interruptions into the normal working of democracy. But in researching and writing this book, of course, I, you know, what I found is that, you know, this stuff sadly more or less happens all the time. So, yeah, 1741 um, in New York, uh, there are a couple of fires um, that sweep through the city, which is pretty understandable because most of the buildings then are made of wood. They're not particularly fire safe. Um, you know, candles and, and, and fireplaces are the norm. But these fires get attributed to this sort of weird conspiracy involving a white tavern owner and his wife and a series of um, enslaved black Americans that, that become swept up in this idea that, um, no, in fact, the, the, the black Americans of New York City are um, in the process of, of rising up to burn the city and, and uh, execute all the whites and, and take it over. And it leads to this crazy panic. And, you know, as you say, you know, a number of people are, are arrested and tried and executed on really spurious charges. And so this stuff kind of happens over and over again, and it doesn't get talked about in the same way that Salem does or the Red Scare. And I think we need to kind of shift how we understand American history is that these are not outliers. These are, in fact, something that happens pretty regularly that we have to be a lot more cognizant of and, uh, and vigilant about. Fast forwarding uh, a little bit to more contemporary times, what you write about in, in chapter 24, which gets into QAnon, is something that's become a, a fear of mine over the past few years. It's easy to, to poke fun or laugh about conspiracy fanatics when it's you know not something you believe in. But if someone you care about is, is taken in or starts to believe in something potentially dangerous, then it becomes like this real... Like concern of mine, and that could probably be the subject of an entirely different book, but going into this project, did you have an idea of how you were going to approach QAnon? Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, a, you know, a friend of mine who, uh, his, his ex-wife, who shared custody with their, their teenage son, and somebody I'd known, and, you know, I'd, I'd known her years ago, um, uh, went from being, a, you know, a pretty middle-of-the-road liberal who voted for Obama twice to being sucked into QAnon, you know, sort of espousing some of these kind of more problematic views. And, uh, you know, I talked to him about her evolution and, you know, basically trying to understand what's happened here. And, and you know, this was a person who was really had all her life been kind of looking for a place to belong, you know, had like never really fit in with his family, had, had moved out from Florida to California and sort of, you know, kind of tried a bunch of different things, got involved in multi-level marketing schemes, you know, looking for a sense of community. And the thing about QAnon was that it offered her that that sense of a belonging, you know. And so one of the things I've found is that 
just kind of barking facts and truths that people usually isn't going to work to sway their minds because they're not interested in the conspiracy theory necessarily because they think it's true per se. What they're interested in is, is that the conspiracy theory does something for them emotionally and intellectually. I mean, they believe it to be true, but they're, they're, they're way more interested in these theories because of the kind of emotional resonance that they give to them. And I think that's the thing that we have to kind of be aware of and think about how we might sort of respond. So when I talk to people about how to get somebody kind of, you know, back from out of the rabbit hole of a, of a conspiracy theory, that one of the things I, I suggest might you might do is sort of figure out what is this theory doing for them? What is it doing emotionally? What is it doing intellectually? What is it doing existentially? And can you can you address that sort of base primal need first before you come in with the facts, which usually aren't going to be enough to sway somebody? So obviously there was a lot of research involved, and I know there was a lot of research involved with your, your other two books. Was the research for Under the Eye of Power different from some of the research you've had to do in the past? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was fascinating to kind of you know, delve through some of these, these historical stories and things that I just wasn't really expecting to find, you know, with, with this story, you know, with this book, what I, what I did is I set up at the outset, you know, kind of the, the frame that I was looking at, I, was, I said, I'm going to look at theories either about, you know, secret groups, either real or imagined that work behind the scenes in some kind of coordinated fashion to, you know, subvert American democracy or break laws. And almost immediately, a couple of groups that, that fit that criteria that I really wasn't expecting to see. One was the Underground Railroad, which, you know, again, it was, a, was, was an actual group of people in the 1850s who worked in secret to violate American laws and the law in question of the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, so, you know, certainly a, a, a noble and, and just and, and good cause. But, you know, it, you know, I had to kind of write them into the book because I, I figured, we, you know, that's another way to understand how these things work and how there were conspiracy theories surrounding the Underground Railroad. You know, and I think another group that I was, I sort of was like, well, this is, if you want an actual group that worked in secret and a coordinated fashion to break American laws, you know, the two best examples um, that aren't conspiratorial, I think, sadly, have been the FBI and the CIA. You know, the, you know, the CIA, who carried out a number of unethical experiments against humans in the, in the 1950s against Americans, you know, involving LSD. And the FBI, who worked behind the scenes to violate the civil liberties of, you know, civil rights movements, uh, the student left in the 60s, all that stuff. So, you know, it was it was a it was an interesting cross section of moments in American history that that I maybe wasn't expecting to, to encounter when I started that process. All right, Colin, really enjoyed the the book. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having on. It's a lot of fun. That was Colin Dickey. He's the author of Under the Eye of Power. It's available everywhere books are sold. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the show's website, theartsection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show Check out theartsection.org. Also, you can always reach out to me if you have a question, suggestion, or idea for the show. You can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at onairgary. That's on air, O-N-A-I-R, Gary. 
Always looking for feedback if you heard something you liked or maybe had a suggestion for something different or have a lead on a story, please reach out to me. It could be anything. I'm always looking for new ideas. Say there's a public art project in your neighborhood or a local theater company that just started. Maybe a great restaurant with a really talented chef that nobody knows about. If you listen to the show, you know I'm interested in in all things creative. If there's something unique In your neck of the woods, uh, feel free to to shoot me an email with some details. Of course, if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter, you can stay up to date on everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks for tuning in this Sunday morning. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. We're changing it up a little. The critics on different shows this week. So rather than our traditional duel over one production, we'll have back-to-back reviews and some crossover between the critics. First up, Jonathan. He took in a play titled A Distinct Society at Writer's Theater. Inspired by true events, the play is set in a library that's on the border of the U.S. and Canada. Jonathan, tell us more. It sits on the borderline between Vermont and Quebec, Canada, and it is a real library. So this play, at least in part, is fact-based. You know, over the last decade, really, the COVID shutdown notwithstanding, uh, Chicago theaters have produced a wide variety of plays by authors of Middle Eastern heritage. Writers whose families, at least, if not them personally, hail from Syria or Egypt, Iran, Iraq, among other nations. Carrie, I think you would confirm that. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. And, you know, Silk Road Rising was a theater company that kind of pioneered presenting such work. But many other local troops have done so as well. And now Writers Theater in Glencoe is joining in with the regional premiere of A Distinct Society by writer and sometimes director of his own work, Karim Fami, a Canadian of Egyptian heritage who now lives in New York and makes his career there. Now, you know, most Middle Eastern authors write plays out of their personal experiences or very often as immigrants to the USA. But Fami takes a different path, maybe because he's not an immigrant. His play, uh, partly based on fact, as we said, is set in an actual library that straddles the border between Canada and the USA, uh, literally with a line down the middle of the reading room. Now, uh, it's important to note this, the setting, because the play takes place during the Trump-imposed Islamic travel ban. And during that time, the library, uh, the real library, became a meeting place for Islamic tourists who could not enter the USA but could enter Canada, and family members they had who were already living in the USA. So a distinct society uh, concerns a cardiac surgeon from Tehran, Iran, who comes to the library to meet his daughter, who is a medical student in Boston. Now, they keep missing each other for various reasons, until close to the end of the play, which allows Fahmy to introduce other characters, a Quebecois librarian, a USA border guard, and a 16-year-old Irish-Canadian boy who is bullied by schoolmates and has a dysfunctional family. Now, um, the play only runs 95 minutes, and for much of that time, uh, 
certainly the first half or more, it feels like a comedy, but it ends up as a melodrama with an antagonist who is not the person you expect it to be. And because the antagonist is, is, a, is a surprise, it's difficult to identify who precisely is supposed to be the hero of the play, especially since all five of the characters are given just about equal stage time. There are lots of meaty two-character scenes, you know, these two, then these two, then these two, and indeed these scenes are what makes a distinct society attractive because they are energetic and often funny, and the characters are very well delineated. So the dialogue writing, uh, Karim Fahmy's dialogue writing, really is very, very sharp. The five actors directed by Fahmy in this production are all aces as well, and yep, that means there are five aces in this deck. And the physical production, <laughs> the physical production is first rate, with a lovely, detailed, small-town library set by Paige Hathaway. But, you know, still, for me, A Distinct Society feels like a play that's a bit out of balance. It really wants to have a happier ending than it has, and a hero-villain dynamic that's easier to grasp, that is, you know, protagonist-antagonist. It's a long one-act play, and it's tough to have five equal characters in a one-act play, and such a multiplicity of issues as are introduced in this one. I really feel the focus wants to be on the Iranian father and daughter, and that Fahmy should eliminate some of the other character issues. But I will still be the first to say that you will not be bored if you go to see a distinct society, and you will find the characters appealing and extremely well-acted. Now, it's a relatively short run. It's been up for a few weeks. It only has one more full week to run. Closes at Writers Theatre in Evanston on July 23rd. Right. I didn't have a chance to see this, obviously, Jonathan, but I'm struck by a couple things, having you know listened to you and yeah. having read some other reviews. First is that, it, well, you're absolutely right, first of all, that we've had a, a wealth of plays about Middle Eastern experience, uh, Swanasa communities in the U.S. and elsewhere. One thing that's interesting to me with a dis hearing about a distinct society is that we've also seen a lot of plays about the border and what a border means. But so often, and I think maybe this is just reflective of where a lot of the attention goes, you know, to our southern border. So it's interesting to me that this sounds like literally a border play that is to the north. Um, I don't think we've seen, you know, as many no. stories about what that situation is like. And, and this is perhaps a very weird association, but... One thing that came to mind as I heard you talk was that one, the wonderful musical, Come From Away, which is about the welcoming of Canada when everybody got stranded after 9-11 on this, you know, this little town. Um, this sounds like it's a rather different experience <laughs> in terms of who is welcome, who is not. And I think that that's a really, you know, these, these stereotypes of who is more, which cultures are more welcoming. Um, I was wondering, how has the Quebecois storyline sort of worked? And I know Kate Fry's character plays that role. Does it get into the issues for those of us who are maybe not, you know, chapter and verse on Canadian separatism or Quebec yeah, separatism well, issues? It does in passing, and indeed the play's title, A Distinct Society, is the Quebecois play and their argument for for independence from Canada is that they mm -hmm. feel, or, or the separatists feel themselves as a distinct society. And yes, it gets into that a little bit uh, through the character of the, uh, of the librarian, uh, who it appears is, or it was at one time, a separatist or had uh, separatist sympathies herself. And uh, it, it's interesting because 
the central relationship he has, she has, is with the, the USA border guard. And that's an interesting dynamic. So the play does get into it, and the title comes from that, but it's not central to okay. really what's going on in the play. It's part of that, what I said, five characters, and they're all given equal time and space, and so are their issues. And, you know, Karim Fami needs to make some, some choices, I think. Writers Theatre's A Distinct Society continues through July 23rd, as Jonathan mentioned. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. And now for something completely different, we'll shift over to, to Carrie. <laughs> well, you know, maybe not quite as different, but yes. No, I, I, I'm definitely uh, carrying the lightweight this week. Uh, Cocandy Productions is producing the local premiere of the SpongeBob musical, which had its pre-Broadway tryout, I should say, back in 2016. Now, I did not see that production, but it went on to win several Tony nominations and has, I believe, has toured and has been elsewhere. The Cocandy show is in the basement of the Chopin Theater, so it's decidedly, uh, you know, in a lower budget, more intimate setting. But I have to say that I found this show, which obviously based on the very popular Nickelodeon Kids series, Directed by J.D. Caudill, I just had a blast. It's not not heavy. This trip to Bikini Bottom does not take you to great depth. But I think if you're looking for something family-friendly or just something for yourself to kick back and laugh and admire the sort of, you know, deliberately homespun design aesthetics, this might be just the show for you. I kind of admire Kakandi because they seem to know how to do really good seasonal planning, too, last Fall, Jonathan and I saw, and I think both admired their production of Sweeney Todd, which won several Jeff Awards and, you know, was just in time for the Halloween season. This one is a perfect, you know, come home from the beach, go to Bikini Bottom. The story, such as it is, if you know SpongeBob, he's eternally optimistic, you know, Sponge Boy. Um, there's a crisis facing Bikini Bottom. The Mount Humongous is about to blow. The one person who might be able to save them is uh, Sandy Cheeks, who is a squirrel seismologist. And this is where maybe a bit of a connection to a distinct society comes in. She is not trusted because she is a land mammal and she is a scientist. So there's a little hint of commentary about xenophobia, about anti-science sentiment. This by no means is a message musical, but it's an interesting way to kind of shoehorn in a few a few uh, contemporary political issues. It's got a sterling ensemble. Uh, particularly enjoyed Parker Guidry. They play Plankton, who is the fan, uh, sorry, Bikini Bottom stand-in for Boris Badenov. If older folk like myself remember those old Jay Ward cartoons. <laughs> and it's yeah. The, the great thing about this show as a musical is that the score is composed by several different great, great pop and rock artists, and up to and including David Bowie and Brian Eno, Cindy Lauper, the couple members of Aerosmith uh, have uh, collaborated on the song uh, Bikini Bottom Boogie. Uh, you've got They Might Be Giants. Um, it's really, I think, a smart thing, so you get this sense of it's like a pop songbook illustrating this very, very pop culture-heavy piece. Um Jonathan, I don't know. Did you see the out of town tryout uh, in I, 2016? I I did not. I will have to tell you the truth that you know that that <laughs> the uh, a, 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 a musical based on the kids animated TV show right. was, was not not the the thing I wanted to see more yeah, than anything else. Yeah, hands up to else. me too. I didn't want to hear a love song called "Squeeze Me Till It Hurts." I don't know. <laughs> 
don't know whether that's in the show or not. I, that no, no but it could be, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I was similarly skeptical, and I thought, ah, I can give this a miss. But then so many people told me that they absolutely had a delightful time at it. I will say, it, at over two hours, it probably overstays its welcome a bit. I think there are some bits that are included for the, for the sake of the bit that could be tightened up. But I think what I really do, again, appreciate about this particular production is that they know they're not going to have the big, explosive Broadway budget. So what they've tailored it to, to me, it felt like almost giving kids an, a chance to see, you know what, this is how this would look if you designed this starfish costume, if you were doing the electric skates, which is the, the Aerosmith stand-in band. And yes, a couple of them do skate in on roller skates, you know, uh, skate shoes. What do you call those? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's um, the kelp forest surrounding them is just, long shimmering strips of uh you know of cellophane um so it's kind of got that deliberately homespun aesthetic that i actually think really helps spark imagination uh i also should call out uh there's a live foley uh artist on stage ellie maitland who has been doing work in chicago for many years very well integrated into it and if you've never had the chance to see a show with live foley effects this is a good place to start too right foley being, being being sound effects exactly live sound effects and there is a live band, a five-piece band. The, the Chopin space can be a little challenging, as we know, the basement. In addition to the fact that it is not ADA accessible, the sight lines, you know, obviously present some difficulties. And there might be points, depending on where you're sitting, where you might not be able to see everything. But I feel like if you're looking for light summer fare, this is absolutely, to me, kind of a kind of a sleeper hit. I went in just thinking it would be, you know, mildly pleasant, and I found myself, you know, quite tickled and engaged by it. And uh, Were, kind you of surprised, Were you tapping your toes? Were you tapping your toes, Carrie? I kind of was tapping my toes. At, yeah, Good. I mean, it, there's, you know, these are people who, obviously, who know how to write songs. <laughs> and it kind of makes me think, hmm, maybe this is something more producers should do. You know, asking somebody to write an entire score, that's a heavy lift. But you can go to someone and say, can you write one song? Um, and, and they will do it. So I, you know, I have watched SpongeBob a little bit with my, with my younger family members back in the day. I can't say that I'm, you know, well-versed in the canon of uh, Bikini Bottom mythos, <laughs> but I don't think you need to be. Honestly, it's not going to be any kind of impediment. And what, will, will we have a sequel where SpongeBob meets Little Nemo? Mm. <laughs> that might be fun. In keeping with their seasonal programming. In the fall, I think Kokandi is doing American Psycho, the musical. Yeah. So that might, <laughs> so that, that's going to be maybe not so family-friendly, I'm thinking. So. Probably not. So maybe going to take the use, kids, take them to this one. <laughs> they can use SpongeBob to, to, to well, sponge up the blood. You know? Right. Well, in Who fact, knows? I believe with the big storms a couple of weeks ago during their previews, they had to cancel a show. They and I think did. it was Chris Jones yeah, they, who said, yeah, maybe did. SpongeBob could go back to his original purpose and help them you yeah. know, clean up because that they're in, Because they're in the Chopin's basement space, there, were, right. there was flooding in real fish and real sponges down there. That's, that's, right. what, I, that's, that's what, right. what I hear. Anyway. Plankton, you know. Who knows, right. The it's a krill like world. Sponges. Yeah. It's a krill world, yeah. Oh, Carrie, you win. You win today for the best, the best that's kind yeah. of the level of wordplay you will find in the you know in those two. So, I mean, obviously, if you know that this sort of thing just makes you roll your eyes, then this might not be the show for you. But I, again, I think you know, keep an open mind. You might find yourself having a lot more fun than you realize. Sometimes we have to put our adult behavior aside. 
And if I remember correctly, I think uh, Steppenwolf ensemble member Tina Landau, she conceived this? Yeah, she was one of the people behind creating it originally, absolutely. And she's a serious and she's director a, and she is a serious creator, artist, yes. <laughs> you do remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Co-Candy Productions, the SpongeBob musical continues through September 3rd, so plenty of time still to see it. Yeah, it's a good long run, longer than most shows have. So it's a good long run for families. All right. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, you're most Gary. welcome. You're tuned in to the art section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. From the outside, it looked like a fairly normal weekday afternoon at the Imagine Cineplex in far west suburban Batavia this past Tuesday. But there was a sense of excitement inside. That's because the Michigan-based theater chain was unveiling what's being built as the largest movie screen in Illinois. Imagine calls it Super EMX. You know, it's 94 plus feet wide by over 40 feet tall. It's illuminated with two synchronized 55,000 lumen laser projectors, and it's accompanied by 64 channels of Dolby Atmos sound. And so it's really designed to be what you might think of as ultra-high definition, only in an enormous format. This is Paul Glantz. He's the founder and chairman of Imagine Entertainment. I caught up with him this past Tuesday just before a special screening of Mission Impossible 7 on the new giant screen, which is the size of a basketball court. How does it compare to like an IMAX screen? Well, an IMAX screen would typically be more square in nature, and this is more of a cinemascope screen. So it's more rectangular, and, and so this is a format you'd be more familiar with from watching films, say, at home on your HDTV. The gargantuan Super EMX screen is the new main attraction at the Suburban Cineplex. Fox Valley residents might remember the space as the one-time Randall 15 Theater. It first opened in 1994 and was a popular spot for area movie fans. Over the years, there were some ownership changes and renovations. The theater went dark for a couple years after the pandemic forced all cinemas to close. However, it didn't reopen. That is, until Imagine Entertainment stepped in and acquired the venue in 2022. The company reopened the Batavia Theater in late May, but its main attraction, the Super EMX screen, wasn't ready until this past week. The West Suburban Cineplex is the latest addition to a growing company that started 34 years ago. That's when Glantz and his one-time business partner bought their first movie theater. Its uh, roots really start in 1989. Uh, my then partner and I bought a one-screen theater, it had 265 seats, and uh, we financed that business with 50 grand we borrowed on our credit cards and 75 grand we borrowed from the bank. And so that was the source of capital kicking us off. Thankfully, we're not quite that levered these days. Glance has seen a lot of change over his three-plus decades in the cinema business. He says there are a couple things that stand out to him as important shifts in how theaters need to operate. We've had several paradigm shifts, is what I would call them, in the last 30 years. The first being the advent of stadium seating. And stadium seating was a real game changer from the perspective that prior to the advent of stadium seating, uh, if you sat behind a woman who had big hair or a guy who was large, and let's say you were a child, it wasn't a great experience. You had to peer your head around people in front of you. And so stadium seating, I think, really enhanced the quality of the movie-going experience because everyone had an unobstructed view. Then as we evolve and, and carry on further, 
Uh, Imagine was actually the first in the world to convert to all digital cinema. And while I think that's, that was noteworthy, the fact is that most folks don't care how the film actually gets on the screen as long as it's bright, crisp, and a beautiful picture. But the next um, episode that, that I call this, the second paradigm shift occurred about, oh, let's say uh, about 10, 12 years ago, which was the advent of luxury seating, recliners in particular. And in some of our venues now, we're on our second, third generation of recliners because we were very early adopters. And so it was kind of counterintuitive to think that you could get rid of two-thirds of your seats and then uh, actually do more business than you did before you had, you know, when you had rocking chair seats. But in fact, that came to pass. People will now plan in advance. They'll buy their reserve seats. Uh, We see more business on Thursdays and Sundays these days than we might have seen in a day gone by. And so those are the two, what I consider the most material paradigm shifts in our industry in the last 30 years. What about the rise in popularity of some studios going right to, to streaming? How has that affected your business? Well, there's no question, but for a time period there, especially, you know, there was this period during the pandemic when the studios said, look, let's try this. Maybe we don't need movie theaters after all. And and I wouldn't suggest that, you know, studios necessarily need theaters, but I think that uh, theaters play a very important role in the evolution of of film. And I think that um, when you see stars in Hollywood, none of them grow up and say, I want to be a TV star when I grow up. They want to be a movie star. And it's been proven sort of time and time again now that if you create uh, enough buzz around a film that it performs at the box office, it's going to be beneficial to all the revenue streams thereafter. I don't believe that streaming versus movie theaters is uh, necessarily a zero-sum game. What, what our industry research has proven is that people who like film like film. And so they're, if you're inclined to watch uh, films at home, you're probably more inclined to go out and watch films as well. Our job is to provide a differentiated experience from what you have at home. We're here to wait on you, we're here to pick up after you, we're here to make fresh popcorn and give you a a wonderful out-of-home experience. And that's, I think, how we continue to earn our stripes. Imagine Batavia's Super EMX screen is opening on a great weekend. The new Mission Impossible movie is just the type of film to showcase the enormous screen and advanced projection system's capabilities. Glance is also optimistic about the rest of the summer movie season. You know, we've had a good summer slate already, and uh, July and August actually look good. And what's even more surprising is the fall lineup looks pretty strong. So uh, we've had a very good year. 22, by comparison, was not as strong, and it largely was uh, due to supply chain constraints. So, for example... Uh, we don't, you don't think of uh, supply chain or films as being a, an, an issue, but the reality is that during COVID, production and post-production essentially came to a halt. And so that was felt in the number of feature releases that were available to theaters in, in 2022. We had about 71 wide-release feature re- releases in 2022. This year, in aggregate, between January 1 and the end of the year, we're looking at over 110. So we're sort of back to 2019 levels of film releases, and that's what's healthy for us, having a wide variety of films. You know, the, uh, the sad part is we won't have another Top Gun Maverick this year, but we've got a lot of what we call doubles and singles. Uh, for example, the, uh, the picture that came out uh, a week or so ago called The Sound of Freedom. It's actually been a breakout success, and no one saw that one coming. 
um, even pictures like uh, No Hard Feelings and, um, uh, and Indiana Jones, they're all doing well. And, and so, you know, most of our buildings have 10 to 12 screens or more, and so we need to fill up more than one auditorium at a time. And so uh, having a variety of films is really a positive thing for our industry. When I was growing up in the, the 90s, you'd have like three, almost three or four every weekend, and you'd have to decide, and there'd be some question as who would finish number one, and then it feels like the past few years, uh, they kind of stagger the releases, though we do have, in a couple of weeks, the Barbie Oppenheimer dual opening. I think the, that that's good um, programming on the part of the studios. Those are probably uh, going to draw different audiences, and so when there are films available for families, children, uh, adults, uh, young people, that's really the best thing that ever happens to us because then we can fill the building up entirely. That's Paul Glantz. He's the co-founder and chairman of Imagine Entertainment. The company's Batavia Theater recently opened and unveiled the largest movie screen in the state of Illinois. You can check it out for yourself in Batavia at 550 North Randall Road. Find out more info at imagine-entertainment.com. I'm Gary Zydek, and this is the Arts Section. A Chicago theater company is commemorating 15 years of its pioneering sensory-friendly programming with some special events this summer and fall. Chicago Children's Theater has been delighting young theatergoers since 2005. A couple years after opening, the company made waves by becoming one of the first theater organizations in the country to present programming designed for kids on the autism spectrum. The initiative is called the Red Kite Project. It's really, I think, like a super comprehensive theater arts program that's really been designed and implemented for young people on the spectrum. Just a series of adventures, which are multi-sensory interactive productions, as well as classes and camps and residencies that we do inside of schools. This is Jackie Russell, Chicago Children's Theater co-founder and artistic director. I recently checked in with her to learn more about the company's groundbreaking Red Kite project and some of the programming that's coming up this summer and fall. What was the impetus to create the project back in 2006? Well, even before that, I was working in a Chicago public school where I was working with a self-contained autism classroom. I was their drama artist in residence there, and I worked there once a week for practically 13 years doing theater games with children who really range in terms of very high-functioning autism to some children that were completely nonverbal, and I just got really inspired by that work and loved working with special educators who I think are just brilliant heroes, and I wanted to carry on that work when I founded the Chicago Children's Theater, and one of the things that I did was I started looking around and seeing what uh, what was happening for children on the spectrum in terms of the arts. There was very little in the United States. Uh, it ended up being that there was a company in London called Oily Carts. They create work for children with very profound disabilities. So I went over there and did some studying with them and then brought them here to spend some time in Chicago. And in 2007, 
we launched our first multi-sensory interactive production that we co-created with them. And uh, since then, we've just been continuing to do that work on our own. And we've been doing lots of training and touring around the country as well as to Canada. And um, we've made a lot of friends along the way. And we've just continued to grow our reach here in the Chicagoland area to try to serve as many children and families as we can. Is it fair to say that what Chicago Children's Theater was doing with the Red Kite Project was, was a trailblazer for North America? Yes, it, it really was. And it's so amazing because now it, it just seems like Every theater you hear of, especially in the children's theater world, they're all involved in doing sensory-friendly productions and um, offering classes and camps that are accessible. And um, But we were the first ones doing it, um, especially on this kind of scale. And uh, now you know, we see students at Northwestern doing programming very similar to ours. You know, people are starting to really look at it as uh, career possibilities for themselves because um, it has become just so much more widely produced work, and that's great. It's really wonderful to see these children and families, I think, getting the attention and the services that they, that they deserve. Just wanted to get a sense of what makes a sensory-friendly workshop or production different than a, a traditional one. For instance, when you go to a theater, typically you are sitting in a pretty dark space um, in your seat in an audience and there are performers on stage and you are witnessing a production. Whereas when you come to a Red Kite adventure, you are actually experiencing a production. We tend to use spaces that are more like uh, rehearsal spaces or gallery spaces. Um, we we want to make sure that there's really no um, distance between the actors and the children who are experiencing it. And the work is very multi-sensory, so children can touch things and smell things, and there's all kinds of little interactive activities that they're participating in. So the idea is really to get total engagement and and the emphasis is really on the senses and experiencing much more than just hearing a narrative story being told or performed for you. So it's it's a very different experience. Like the most children will host at one time in a performance will be twelve children and then they'll have caregivers with them or maybe other family members. But it's a very, very intimate experience, and um, I would say it's somewhere between theater and an amusement ride. (laughs) Right, right. You know, here we are 15-plus years later from when it launched. What was the response in those early days from families that that maybe had children on the spectrum? Yeah, it. um, you know, it's interesting. It still continues to often be very emotional for folks, but... But especially then, um, I remember our first performance. It was very uh, emotional for families to to go somewhere where they felt so welcomed. And you know, part of that experience is that you are you're with performers who've been trained to be specifically responsive to the needs of people on the spectrum, and we do a lot to alleviate 
anxiety and to make the children feel comfortable. But we also know that they're still going to potentially um, respond in ways that might be surprising. Uh, They might just get up and try to walk out of the room or some children might be just slapping hands or, or doing things that might be expressing some discomfort or anxiety. And we're completely comfortable with that and accepting of any kind of behavior. In our first performance, I remember a child, um, you know, doing a lot of rocking and flapping and sort of humming to himself. And his mother felt really concerned that maybe she needed to take him out of the performance. And we reassured her that no, that anything he did was perfectly fine. We were happy to have him stay and participate in any way he felt comfortable. And then she started crying and saying that she couldn't even take him to just go to get a donut somewhere because if they would go out, people would stare at them and and make them feel really uncomfortable uh, with his behavior. And it was just the first time that she really felt that she could relax with him in public. And um, so we would get a a lot of stories like that. From, from parents. Uh, we also had children who their parents said it was the first time they ever spoke to someone outside of their own family. Uh, so, it, you know, it was pretty profound and uh, it was very emotional and rewarding for us and especially for the performers who were getting to spend this really sort of beautiful, joyful, warm time with these families. Sounds incredibly emotional. Just the benefit of being part of something that's that's so special is there like a thought that some of these activities are just being part of uh the arts slash like a a theater production does that have benefits for for the kids i think it absolutely has benefits i mean i you know when i started doing this work in the classroom i remember you know articles by people about um children with autism saying that children with autism can't really play um, they can't really play act, play with other children, and that's just not true. What we really would see in that space was that we just needed to model playing for them. We needed to create very specific guidelines and roles and the way to play, and um, the kids really suddenly learned to um, to act and to perform. And we started even making movies with the kids in that classroom. And they loved, they loved acting. They loved being on stage. They loved playing with one another. And so those social skills and the communication skills that they were gaining from that time was just really, I think, very life-changing for them and for their families. And we would send home surveys to their families and just ask them if they were noticing changes in vocabulary and behavior. And we got so many responses back saying, my child is just talking more and um, telling us more about their feelings. We spent a lot of time working on identifying emotions and feelings. And so a lot of those principles that I was doing in the classroom, I've really incorporated into these adventures because I really think that play is the way that children work and learn. And so it's just a great place to play. And at the same time, they're starting to really experience the world in a very different way. And sometimes in ways that maybe they would not have been comfortable doing before, but we've created an environment that is particularly welcoming to them and it allows them to open up and in turn, they grow. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Jackie Russell, the co-founder and artistic director of Chicago Children's Theater. We're talking about the company's Red Kite project. There's a bunch of things coming up. Tell me about the Red Kite friendship tour that's currently underway. Yes, I'm so excited to share that with you. We have uh, some of our wonderful Red Kite artists going out on a tour around the city. It's called the Red Kite Friendship Tour. Um, We're going to be in six uh, Chicago Park District locations, as well as we're going to be out at Skokie and in Oak Park. And they're 30-minute interactive, sensory-friendly experiences. Um, We've got two actors and a musician, and we're using music and dance and puppets and multi-sensory drama activities to just engage kids and families. Um, It's really super fun. It's designed for kids on the spectrum, but all children are welcome. And I guarantee you, like all we've seen just all kinds of kids and they're all having a great time uh, just dancing and playing with us. Um, All of that is um, being sponsored by the Chicago Park District Night Out in the Parks and the Mayor's Office and the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. So we're super grateful to them because all of these uh, performances are free. So it's a great time for people to come out and meet us, and then they can learn more about Camp Red Kite, which we have coming up this summer, July 24th through August 11th. And that's an arts camp. It's a day camp that's for kids um, and young adults anywhere from 8 to 22, where they get to explore drama, music, and visual arts with us. All of our teachers are very specifically trained to work with diverse learners. We also have some wonderful special educators that we we also employ in the summer with us to work with our camps. So it's a super creative, safe, and welcoming environment for young people on the spectrum. We'd love to have more people learn about what we're doing. They can come to our website at chicagochildrenstheater.org, and we've got all of the Red Kite Friendship Tour dates up there, as well as more information about our camps. And we also have fall classes that people can participate in as well that will be coming up. As far as the uh, the tour, that program in the in the parks, that's that's new this year. Yes, you know we um, we started doing a lot more outdoor performing since COVID and the pandemic, and so we we've created experiences that are wonderful to be outside, but can tour into other locations. Like in Skokie, we'll be in a library. In Oak Park, we're going to be at our favorite coffee shop, Whirlwind. We wanted something where we could go out into the community and uh, and also like really spread the word about the Red Kite programming. So the, the friendship tour is a way for us to go out and make new friends. And uh, yeah, this is our first year doing it. And we're having lots of success and we just love meeting all these new families and children. So the next one will be uh, Tuesday, July 18th at the Skokie Library. And then, of course, you can go to the Chicago Children's Theater website to find out all the, the future dates. And you mentioned the uh, Camp Red Kite, which is July 24th through August 11th. And then in the fall, there's going to be a series of, of workshops. Yes, uh, super Super fun fall classes coming up. Um, we have classes for kids from ages 8 to 15. We have our own home in the West Loop of Chicago um, where we offer some sessions for story hoppers. Those are for really young ones, ages 4 to 7. And then we also have uh, a Red Kite workshop that's acting in movement for those older kids that are 8 to 15. And then 
super, super cool in November is we have Yuri Lane, the human beatbox, who is doing a beatboxing workshop with kids on the spectrum. And it's amazing because they get to use their entire bodies and make music. And I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And it is wildly entertaining. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, maybe like that sounds like something I'd want to sign up for. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so fun and uh yeah i mean he's an incredible performer and a teacher and he gets everybody beatboxing so yeah come on come on by. We'll see you <laughs> I, I don't fit the criteria but yeah definitely uh something i wish i could well yeah it sounds like lots of really great stuff coming up but uh, jackie thanks so much for taking time to, to talk with me thank you i really appreciate you talking with me and spreading the the good word about the red kite project That was Jackie Russell. She's the co-founder and artistic director of Chicago Children's Theater. You can learn more about the company's Red Kite Project by visiting chicagochildrenstheater.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek, and I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay cool out there. Thanks for listening.